This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Going to continue to worship the Lord now through the public reading and study of his word. The word to hear in the Bible, Shema, is also the same word for obey. So this part of worship is very important. The first reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 10, and verses 34 through 43. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Our gospel portion is from the Gospel 
according to Matthew chapter 3, we will honor an ancient Christian tradition. Please stand. It's a tradition to stand in the presence of kings, and it was a Christian tradition to stand when you hear the good news about the king. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Again, let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, quiet ourselves before you. Again, we ask that the spirit of the living God, the spirit of uh, Jesus himself, would be our teacher, that we uh, sit at his feet, learn from him, take instruction. And we pray that uh, you will uh, give us uh, ears to hear, and eyes to see this morning. Again, we pray this, not only for our sake, but again, for the sake of Jesus uh, and his glorious kingdom. Amen. I'd like to say a few words uh, on the gospel, uh, and I think how it relates to us. We are in the season of Epiphany. We're learning about the revelation of Jesus Uh, to Israel and uh, to the Gentiles. And we have this incident, or this, uh, you might say, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, which is very puzzling and truly curious, especially for a lot of Christians. And the the issue uh, that uh, probably uh, attracts the most attention immediately is why is Jesus being baptized? If this is a baptism Uh, of repentance, what has uh, Jesus done wrong or what sin uh, has Jesus uh, committed? And of course, we we know um, from the scripture um, in more ways than one that uh, Jesus was uh, sinless, that uh, really he had no need to repent. So what is this all about? And some scholars talk about this as being an incident that causes the church great embarrassment. I'm not so uh, sure about that because I'm not so sure that we fully or totally, uh, at least in the Jewish context, uh, understand the activities of John the Baptist. (coughs) Let me just say a few words about those activities and perhaps offer an alternative suggestion as to why Jesus went uh, down to the Jordan River. We assume it was Jordan River. It doesn't tell us this exactly. We don't know where Jesus was baptized because John himself was moving around geographically. He was an itinerant baptizer. He did not have a cathedral, but perhaps if he had lived long enough, someone would have built him a cathedral. (laughs) So John is unique. There's some unique features about John. There's some 
you might say, some things that you find within the, the context of his Jewish world that uh, give us maybe an idea of what he was doing. But as far as we know, he puts things together in somewhat of a somewhat of a unique way. People in the past, have, uh, scholars in the past, have tried to connect him to Qumran. And if you go down to the National Park of Qumran, you can see a little cute little movie about how John the Baptist was a member of this group. It's not totally implausible, but it's certainly not something that we can prove. So some people say he took his inspiration from Qumran. Others uh, suggest that he, he took his inspiration, baptism, from Jewish ritual immersion, the practice of Jewish ritual immersion. That was connected to purification from death. Jews uh, in the Second Temple period very frequently went into a baptismal pool of living water, water that had not been touched by human hands, and they dipped themselves when they came into contact, for example, with a dead body after childbirth, after a woman's menstrual period, after a man had sexual relations with his wife. None of this was a sin. This was not sin, but it was also a reminder that God could not abide death. Yes, the people of Israel were to reflect God's character. They were to be holy, and they were to be a people of life. In fact, holiness and life are synonyms. Uh, We even can hear it in English when we talk about the sanctity of life. And so some suggest that John takes inspiration from this. Not sure where John totally comes up with this practice, but one thing is certain. John himself understands a very key and fundamental biblical truth, yes? And that biblical truth is that redemption or renewal, God's redemption of, uh, of human beings, human uh, renewal, even human flourishing, is connected to one thing, largely. It's connected to repentance, that uh, for there to be redemption, for there to be change, there has to be repentance. And this is a theme that works its way through the scripture, although it works its way through largely through the latter part of the Old Testament. Uh, the prophets, for example, make quite a point of this. Prophets understand that Israel will be renewed or that Israel will even be redeemed, but the redemption, the return of Israel from exile has to be connected with repentance. Even in uh, the book of Leviticus, the whole concept of the Jubilee year, of things going back to the way they really should be, to uh, justice for those who are in debt, freedom for slaves. All of this happens, not just in the 49th year, but all of this happens on Yom Kippur. There has to be repentance for there to be redemption. By the way, it's well understood in the ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but the words before that, repent, repent. The story of uh, Zacchaeus is a marvelous, wonderful story that illustrates this, this concept. Zacchaeus, the tax collector of Jericho, the godfather of Jericho, the cheat of cheats, does what? He repents. He repents not just intellectually, He's not a Protestant evangelical. We would have come down and said, I'm sorry. I feel bad, I'm sorry. 
but I'm keeping the money. Uh, sometimes our critique of uh, Protestants, it all happens up here in the head. So Zacchaeus repents, he not only changes his heart, but he, he had, brings forth fruits of repentance. He climbs a, what do you call it, a sycamore tree, which very interestingly in Hebrew, the word sycamore is uh, shikma, and shikma is, is, is the same as the word renewal. So it's through his repentance that renewal comes to him. And Jesus says that, you know, today, you know, redemption has come, salvation has come to this, to this son of Abraham. So John and Jesus both connect a new start, a new beginning, with first and foremost, with repentance. And this is what I believe John is doing, that John is calling upon the people of Israel to repent as a way to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, or to even say to God, God, we're, we hunger and thirst after your redemption, and we're going to show you how serious we are by repenting, and repenting not only for our sins, but also repenting on behalf of the nation, repenting on behalf of the nation. And this is what uh, people are doing. We know from Josephus that not only the sinners went to, went to John to immerse themselves, but also the virtuous went as well. And so I believe that Jesus is identifying with his people. He's identifying with this cry for renewal, for sal- salvation from the, the miserable, rotten place that the nation finds itself in, and that Jesus himself goes to John and is baptized. In the dialogue that we just read, the short dialogue, John says to Jesus, I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, let it be done for righteousness sake. And again, righteousness is a funny word. Righteousness is a word, it's a very rich word in Hebrew. It has very many meanings. And one of its meanings or one of its uh, understandings could be God's saving activities or God's, you might say, to put it in modern English, God's big agenda. I believe that Jesus is saying to John, let this be done for God, because it's God's big agenda. It's not a question I'm, of me not being righteous. It's a question of God's, you might say, way of redemption, a way of, of salvation for the human family. What's important about all this, if we can put aside why Jesus was baptized, and we don't have to enter into the question that perplexes so, so many of us, and so how was he baptized? This is a question that uh, I think was animated, started in the Reformation. It's still with us today. People are still arguing about this kind of thing today. Well, if you really want to know, Jewish, to be baptized in the first century, you went into the water by yourself and you put yourself in. Yes, and you probably dunked yourself, uh, submerged yourself fully three times. Nobody went into the water with you and then tried to drown you by <laughs> making sure that your nose and your lungs filled up with water. Okay. Look, this I'm not being critical of this. People can do this if they wish. We have that freedom. And if that symbolism speaks to us, then do it. But if you want to be historical about it, Jews then and even today immerse themselves. You can have a witness watching, and I'm sure John was that witness. John probably stood on the shore. Jesus went into the water. But what's critical 
Yes, it's not how, but what's critical is what. What happened? And what happened was, as Jesus is baptized, he's anointed. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a case of Jesus being adopted. Some people suggest that uh, Jesus was a nice, ordinary guy, and then when he got to the Jordan River, God looked down and saw, hey, here's a good candidate for, uh, here's a good candidate for being the Messiah. I think I'll adopt Jesus. I'll make him into my son. I'll give him the Holy Spirit. You may, you may remember that at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, yes, that Jesus is conceived by the Spirit. Okay, so the old Christian heresy of adoptionism, which is still around, alive and well in some circles, doesn't seem to hold water. Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's virtually no precedent for that in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. Maybe with two exceptions, Elijah and Elisha. They both are anointed by the Spirit. And Jesus, too, uh, is anointed by the Spirit. He will begin his ministry. But the Spirit does something more than just give Jesus power. Yes, we're, we're all of us, uh, whether we like it or not, we're all influenced by Pentecostalism. And on the whole, that's probably not a bad thing. So they've been able to restore to the church the understanding that uh, uh, God still heals and still in the business of doing uh, miracles on behalf of his people. So we all get, in some ways, the power part. You know, we don't get the power part, and we got some people who are desperately seeking this power. But still, nonetheless, we don't, I don't know that we need to focus on that. Where I think we so often ignore or forget, there's another role of the Spirit. There's another role of the Spirit in this text. Uh, and later we will read in the epistles, especially in the book of Romans. The Spirit is conveying to Jesus the Spirit is telling Jesus, he's affirming Jesus, he's giving Jesus his identity. The identity of who Jesus is, you might say, is confirmed, okay, at this moment. That giving, and you might say, or strengthening, or developing, that giving of the identity, I think is crucial, and I think it's important for us. Why is it important for us? Because we live in an age of identity theft. And this is not a question of someone hacking into our computer and stealing our identity and going on a shopping spree. Yes, or uh, collecting our social security benefits or doing whatever happens in these awful things. Now, I'm not minimizing this, but as bad as it is for us to have our identity stolen, to have people rip us off or cheat us, whatever, it's even worse even worse and even certainly more dangerous for us to have our identity in God and that identity that in Christ taken from us or twisted or perverted or uh, somehow abused. And if we want to think about it, I think this is uh, where we begin, where does, where does that identity come from? And, and with Jesus, it's very interesting. The, the, God affirms his identity. He, he just says, Jesus, this is who you are. You are my son, which comes from Psalm 2. It's a little snippet of scripture. Uh, with you, I am well pleased. 
which comes from Isaiah 42, verse 6. In this, God uh, says to Jesus, look, you are in intimate relationship with me, and I'm well pleased. Now, if we think about it for a moment, which we should, there's a little bit of a paradox here. And the paradox is that on one hand, Jesus hasn't done one miracle. He has not gone on one ministry trip. He has not um, written one book. And he hasn't started 30,000 denominations yet. (laughs) Well, he didn't start those, right? So God says to him, I'm in intimate relationship with you. And with you, I'm well pleased. Now, again, thinking about this, Jesus is the beloved. Yeah, he's the beloved son. He's loved and he's done nothing. He has done nothing. He's not big, he's not great. Or is there another way of looking at this? And both might be true. What has Jesus been doing for 30 years? He's working, being obedient, growing in favor with God and uh, those around him. Jesus who lived a Jewish life, we know Luke says, as it was his custom, he went into the synagogue. So Jewish religious life at that time meant that uh, one chanted the scriptures, studied the scriptures, one uh, prayed the scriptures, one ate the scriptures, you would eat food associated uh, with Passover, for example, uh, or other Jewish holidays. You would reenact the scriptures. Uh, so, for example, Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles was a reliving and not just a retelling, but a reliving of God's provision in the desert and the exodus from Egypt. And so maybe God is saying to Jesus, I'm well pleased that you've been patient, that you've been obedient, that you've been faithful, that you've worked at a carpenter's bench for all these years. What is it? Whatever it is, it's part of his identity. With you, I am well pleased. By the way, I don't know if we are very often in our day and age think about the concept of pleasing the Lord. We think the Lord should please us, yes, but we fall back. Again, there's this unfortunate evangelical, you might say, excuse that keeps us from taking holiness seriously. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I really can't help myself. Well, it is true we're all sinners saved by grace, but should that be the way that we define ourselves? Should that be solely, only our identity? Yes, this is where bad theology or less than complete biblical theology has actually robbed us of an identity. And we can be robbed of an identity, by the way, can we not? We can be robbed of an identity by the culture in which we live, by our ethnic group, which might say, hey, we're great, we're great, we're wonderful, or it might say, we're victims, we're poor, we're miserable, you know, we're stupid, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, We may be uh, robbed, again, by a a religious denomination. We may be robbed by some kind of political ideology that we subscribe to. 
uh, we're often robbed of that identity. We're robbed of that identity of who God makes us to be and who we are to be, yes, in the Messiah, in Christ, by uh, the brokenness inside of us, that broken uh, voice, uh, often, uh, or that voice that distorts us, that is, um, that distorts, looks towards uh, something created, yes? It looks towards some creature uh, for our center or for uh, the identi- for, uh, identity. And so we uh, end up trying to prove ourselves. Uh, we end up living a life of anxiety. I don't make enough money. I don't have the right body shape. My teeth aren't the right color. My children aren't perfect. You know, they're not all attending Ivy League schools. Well, I've been divorced once or twice. I'm a failure. I have to um, be proud, for example, of uh, what I have achieved, so on and so forth. There is a, a voice within us, yes, that wants to take our identity. There is a world system and a culture that wants to rob our identity. But you can easily say, or many people will easily say, oh, no, no, I, I, don't, uh, I don't give in to that. And so to paraphrase a famous professor these days, he's a bit of a rock star, maybe rightly so, from Calvin College, who oh, I actually respect very much, James Smith, he said, uh, we may declare or we may insist that we're not bowing down to the idols of this age, or we're not listening to the voices of this age. No, I'm in touch with God in the scripture. Yet, very powerfully, our lives may be saying something else. Our lives may be shaped by the shopping mall. Our life may be shaped by the football stadium. Yes, our life is shaped by Amazon. What could be wrong with Amazon? What could be wrong with getting a package delivered by a drone? You know, at nine in the morning, you want to order Led Zeppelin four on vinyl? You know, you get it by noon. It's great. The world is wonderful. Yeah, but does that not create expectations? That somehow my life with God soon has to be like Amazon? You know, come on God, chop chop. You know, give me the answer. Give me direction. Give me the money. Show me the money, I don't know. Whatever. Yes, it creates, uh, creates expectations. It also demands, the culture demands us to be loyal to things that we should not give our loyalty to. Uh, this is where we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful. The culture tells us, by the way, the culture tells us, hey, now these, this day, since we're postmodern, You can construct your own identity. You can have your own identity. You know, you don't have to go along. Identity is no longer God-given. Identity can be altered by technology, or it can be altered by ideology, or it can be altered by, by, you know, uh, our own brokenness. But may I remind you that the identity that's being stolen from us first and foremost comes from God. And God says, I, we are going to make 
human, the human family in our image. Yes, we are made in God's image. And by the way, it's a Trinitarian image because it's let us make. And it's interesting, at the baptism, we have the first evidence of the Trinity. It's the Father, Son, and the Spirit that's there, that's affirming Jesus. That's why I think it's important that baptism is done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what it means to be made in God's image is that uh, we uh, imitate God and uh, do the things that he does and live the life that he does with, of course, there's some parameters, you might say. And before we can be a Christian and a follower of Jesus, we have to be human beings. We have to understand that we're made, we're made in God's image. And then, hopefully, we choose first with repentance and then with faith to become followers of Jesus. And that gives us, that too gives us an identity. If we don't let the world, the culture, even the devil, rob us of that identity. The first thing that happens to Jesus after he leaves uh, the place of baptism, he goes into the desert and he's tempted by the devil. And the devil basically says, if you're the son of God, if, are you really? Or are you the son of God? Well, okay. And so we will be tempted. Our identity uh, will be robbed from us subtly or maybe on purpose. And the issue, the question, is how do we maintain that identity? How do we strengthen the identity? How do we live into the identity? And this is what I, I think that uh, all of us must practice really on a daily basis. Because if we're not, if we're not uh, fully living into our identity, if we're not growing or coming to a place of who we are in God and who we are uh, in Christ, yes, if there's a vacuum, something else will fill that identity. And we will not live in the place where God wants us to live. We will not know his fullest, the fullest intimacy of, of uh, being in relationship with him. And we will not bring blessing to others. We will be destructive to others. And so how do we do this? So our passage started, by the way, with a voice, did it not? It's uh, John the Baptist. We, actually, it's not the passage we read, but still the passage in chapter three. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So this is John's verse. Yes, this is God saying that who John is and what John is to do. John is a voice who is crying in the desert. Well, I should say a, a voice of one crying in the desert makes straight the ways of the Lord. John understands the Messiah is coming to the desert. He's in the desert preparing, hopefully, the people of Israel, preparing even us for this divine, uh, soon coming divine revelation. At the end, Jesus hears a voice at the end of our gospel passage, end of the chapter, and that voice is a voice that comes from heaven. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. My dear friends, 
Where do we get our identity from? I believe it starts first and foremost by us listening for a voice. That voice is the voice of scripture. It's a logos, but sometimes the voice is something that's rhema. It's a voice that we hear uh, spoken to us by God in our heart. That voice that's the rhema word will never violate or contradict scripture. But still, we need to first and foremost, I believe, receive an identity by hearing God's voice. God is speaking to us, but very frequently we're too busy to listen. It isn't perhaps an audible voice as Jesus heard, but it is indeed a voice and it's something that comes from God. It is not just more biblical information and not more doctrine. We're full of doctrine and we're full of biblical information. We have millions of people who walk around who do not fully understand who they are. Their identity has been stolen from them. We should seek to hear the voice of the Lord. And the voice of the Lord should speak to us as a father speaks to a child, as a father speaks to a child. Secondly, it's not just, again, just reading the Bible, which I fully endorse, but it also comes in worship. And the reason worship is so important is that worship is the place where we who are bent, most human beings, are getting their identity are getting, we're getting our self-worth from something created or from someone. C.S. Lewis says that when we start to worship God, we start to become straight. We don't bend towards the creature or the created thing. We start to, to you, you might say, straighten up and come into right relationship with God. And that happens with worship. But it only happens with the right kind of worship. We cannot necessarily come into that process of healing if we're engaged in a worship in which it's all about me, me, me. It's only, only about my, my sin, my walk with the Lord, my struggles, my justification. And of course we know that some of the problems with modern worship reflects the brokenness of our culture, which is an obsession with self. And so I love Jesus, Jesus loves me, Jesus is my lover, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We, we all know this critique. And here's, here's a, something practical, and I'm not saying this is the only solution, but ancient Christian worship, especially that liturgic worship that is liturgical, tends to be well thought out. It tends to be God-centered. It tends to prevent us from being passive. Yes, from sitting back and just waiting for something to happen as if we're being entertained in a theater. The word liturgy means the work of the people. And we all know that in Hebrew, the word for worship is work. You see, we have to make an effort. And I think because sometimes we're so influenced in the wrong way or so distorted, you might say, or we under, have a distortion of what grace means. And grace means I'm just going to be cool, I'm going to lay back, and God's going to dump it all in me. I don't have to work on an identity. I don't have to struggle 
you, what you might say, to come to a place of holiness. Nope, it's just going to all happen for me, and if somehow I have to struggle, then something has to be wrong with that. My dear friends, the response, proper response to God's grace is effort. Is effort. It's responsibility. That does not mean we're earning anything. It simply means that we are coming to a place. Yes, so worship. Prayer itself. Prayer itself. And by the way, maybe a step back, just one, one step and we finish. Worship can't just be something that happens in the head. Yes, worship can't be something that uh, only happens in our heart. Last week when we read about the, talked about worship in Matthew's gospel and talked about how people worship Jesus, it's always in Matthew's gospel they're doing something physical. They're falling down on their face. They're bringing gifts. It's more than just some kind of uh, intellectual ascent. And so I think there's, uh, there's a continuation of a theme here that uh, oftentimes customs and traditions uh, and rituals will help us to internalize the truth. Why do we kneel at the Lord's Supper? Well, so you might say it's just a custom and I don't want to do it. We don't have to do it. And when we come to the Lord's table, don't kneel if it's not your conviction. But some people will say, well, I want to kneel because uh, I want to symbolize my humility. It's very nice. It's a great thing to do. But what if kneeling regularly at the Lord's Supper or taking communion helps to make us submissive and helps to make us humble? Why do we stand when we read the gospel? It's to remind all of us, more than to remind all of us, to help us to come to a deeper understanding that we need to cherish the words of Jesus. We need to cherish his stories. We're not sitting in front of the computer and reading an apple pie recipe. I think these things are essential in worship. So there is the reading of scripture, listening to God's voice. Again, that voice will, uh, that voice will never contradict scripture but that voice will indeed affirm us and remind us of who we are, that we are beloved, and this doesn't necessarily depend on what we do and where we come from. Worship certainly does the same. Prayer does the same and more. But we have to intentionally work on our identity. Someone steals our identity. We were frantic, and we call the police or the FBI, and we get it back. Well, I hope we'd have that same passion. I hope we'd have that same passion, okay, to get to restore that identity. I'd like to end by reading Paul's words in Romans. He says the following. He says, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the misdeeds of the body. You will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit, here, okay, if we're led by the Spirit, we have an identity. We're sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That spirit is giving us 
an identity. But part of that identity, or part of what the Spirit is given for, so that we do not live according to the flesh. Again, there's an effort involved here. We are being given divine help, yes, to, to overcome. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So this isn't uh, only a feel-good message. Let's find out that we're God's children. But it's a message that uh, with our identity comes responsibility. And with that identity might come suffering or difficulty or misunderstanding. But if those things do happen to us, we will indeed, as sons and daughters, share in God's glory. Father, we pray that you'll help us in these matters. Lord, we pray that no one will indeed rob us of our identity, whether it's the devil or the flesh or the world. We pray that you'll teach each one of us, that you'll encourage us and give us a deeper understanding as how to live in the identity that you've given to us, how to strengthen and cultivate that identity. And Lord, how to help others do the same. Help us, we pray, in these matters. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.